Hi, this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA and the host of the CSA podcast show. And I'm really excited today. We have another awesome episode in the Security Leaders series that we've been doing this year. And uh, my guest today is Robin Bertier, CEO and co-founder of Network Perception. Now, Robin, uh, in addition to being an entrepreneur, he is, uh, and we'll get into his story, but he's a researcher and he is a problem solver. He's a technologist. He's actually a, a rock climber. He's had a hand in movie uh, movie making, producing, directing, uh, another area of interest uh, of his and, and uh, a movie enthusiast as I am as well. So we got that uh, in common. And, uh, and and you took a technology out of a out of a university research setting and created a company around it with others. And I think we're going to, you know, we're going to talk about that. That's really exciting. So, Robin, welcome to the show. Thanks, Derek. Great, great to be here and looking forward to, uh, to our discussion today. I always uh, start with sort of uh, uh, the, the, the analogy that uh, cybersecurity folks are superheroes of a sort and all superheroes have a backstory. I'm assuming you did not fall into some vat of, uh, of acid and, and get your superpowers. You Probably something a little more natural. Uh, but so where did you grow up? Actually, no, I'm kidding. You yeah, know, I, I grew up uh, a small town in the northwest uh, region of France called Brittany. Great, lovely uh, region there right by the sea. And then uh, went to school, uh, you know, in the first uh, dedicated major on cybersecurity in France. And that, that was really where I started my passion for thinking how to break systems and how to, uh, to protect them uh, better. Uh, so let's go back all the way to your formative years. I'm always interested where uh, where technology and security, you know, come into people's career paths. And usually it's technology first. You know, as a young right. person, is there a technology interest uh, early in your uh, early in your story? Yeah, no, I, I remember very well uh, when my dad, uh, you know, brought the first computer at home, and uh, my brothers and I were just uh, looking at this new machine, and and uh, you know, started with video games like like many of us uh during my teenage years and then the more i was working with computers the more i was fascinated with this idea of being able to you know build a universe like like when you uh, start doing software development you can really define all the rules so you can build your, your own playgrounds so i was starting to do uh, you know, software development for modules of video games first, and then more and more like creating websites, creating uh, actual programs. And uh, and so when I had to, to choose, uh, you know, where to go to college, uh, that was the natural path. Like I wanted to become a programmer or, or really understand this concept of computers, especially the, the cybersecurity aspect. Yeah, and you 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 got a degree. Um, you know, people. It's funny where cybersecurity some sort of merges at different people's careers paths, but you 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 actually have your formative degree was in uh, in computer security. That's right. So you know, back then, early two thousands, you know, cybersecurity was taking off, and so in academia, in in colleges, there were uh, resources put in place by the government to uh, to create the next generation, next workforce with training in in computers and cybersecurity. So I. I joined the, uh, you know, a school in the city of Bourges, which is about two hours south of Paris. And, uh, you know, the first class, I was I was in the first class of that major. There was no, uh, you know, the major wow. didn't exist before. And it was yeah. just 15 of us. So it was just 15 students, uh, very experimental, very, uh, you know, cutting edge. Uh, we had great professors and, and, uh, and people coming to teach us different concepts working from the industry and like everything from uh, you know the, the concept of of uh, 
uh, cryptography, of course, but you know how to do secure by design architecture, secure programming. Uh, so working for about three years in that in that school, uh, learning as much as I could. Yeah, getting the the degree first, uh, you know, degree with uh, you know, cybersecurity written on it. It's funny. I was gonna say I, I thought that a program dedicated to that had to be coming around, out, come into being around then. It doesn't go back right. that much further. So that's yep. cool that you were in the first cohort, uh, you know, graduating group of that uh, of yep. that program. A anything, uh, you know, we'll get to it. But anything there about industrial control systems, or is it it's still just cybersecurity and all the stuff having to do with that? Were you exposed to anything having to do with it, with control systems or engineered systems? Not at the time. That was general IT security, enterprise yep. security. So I wasn't exposed to uh, control systems yet. That came later. Okay. So now you, I think you do some internship work in, in France, but you're, you're eyeing another program, another education program, a, a, a PhD program. Yes. So at the end of, of this undergrad uh, journey, uh, we had an opportunity for a six-month internship, some kind of a study abroad program. And I remember our professor over there sharing with us the contact information of about 20 uh, colleagues of him spread throughout the the world, like a few in the US, uh, a few in Europe, in Asia, and Australia. I reached out to, to a couple of them, and then one in uh, University of Maryland College Park in the US responded to me. They had a position. So I, I told my parents, I'm going to the US for the first time. Uh, I should be back in six months. And that was in, uh, you know, 2005, like March to August 2005. Uh-huh. I know a little of your story. Um, did you get back in six months? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> so I met uh, my advisor, Professor Michel Cuquier, working on, on cybersecurity within the mechanical engineering department of the uh, University of Maryland because we were hosted by a program, a center called the Reliability Engineering uh, Center. So within reliability, you have you know hardware, reliability and then and then software and within software you know we, we had cybersecurity. So I worked closely with him and the research group over there. We published a paper and I really loved it. Like I, I, there was no way for me to uh, you know to not continue that opportunity. Uh, so decided to stay for five more years in uh, in College Park working on my PhD. And over there I was working on honeypots. So we were studying wow. and looking at systems we could put on networks without any legitimate use for them. So every activity you would detect on those machines would be uh, suspicious. And uh, and so the, the challenge there was how can we scale that, uh, that type of data gathering? Because if you just put one IP address with one computer, you know, it's like phishing. You, you just uh, go and, and uh, you're hoping to, uh, to catch something. Uh, but we wanted to scale that to thousands of IP addresses and, and be able to study attack processes at scale and, and getting much like statistically min, min, meaningful information. So I worked on a hybrid concept of what's called low interaction and high interaction honeypots. So we had a, a, a large number of low interaction honeypots where you have just limited resources with many, many IP addresses. We had two, uh, two class Bs over there. So, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of IP addresses dedicated for you know, collecting attack traffic. And then as soon as we caught a fish, as, as soon as, you know, someone was starting to interact with our low, low interaction honeypot, we would switch uh, in the same TCP connection to have the high interaction honeypot being able to respond to the attacker and then extract as much information as possible to know what they were, what their intention 
yeah. was what the attack techniques they would uh, they would use, and so that was that was fascinating. No, I, I bet it was. And that was an open source uh, honeypot project, right? Yep, that became a, a open source on SourceForge, this hybrid, the low high interaction uh, project called Honeybrid. And yeah, that was kind of my first, you know, dedicated open source project. I really, you know, enjoy again programming and and being able to contribute to the community. So that was a great experience. I, I really, I really loved it. So at that point, any in in both the PhD, the degree program, and then this working on the Honeypot stuff, anything is is control systems or industrial systems coming in? Not yet. So I think really those years as you know, PhD student, you know, moved me in a direction towards more network security, access control, yep. looking at the traffic monitoring. I was working also on a on an open source software to uh, visualize uh, NetFlow data. And in addition to the classes I was taking in cybersecurity, I was also very interested in information visualization. You know, I was taking taking some classes to you know how to represent complex data sets and how to uh, you know multi-dimensional you know data in a way that as humans we can comprehend and, and extract you know good insights from so those two things you know cybersecurity networking but also information visualization really helped me to uh, you know choose the next uh, the next step in my career which was to get actually more involved with uh, with control systems so I think it's you know I know next you you move move to the Midwest you move from from the East Coast to the Midwest the United States and I want to talk about that I think it's mm-hmm. important we think about we have lots of different kinds of listeners at different career you know steps and we have people who are in degree programs or who are as you become you know a research scientist you're no longer in a degree program you're working at a university and then you end up in the space and you bridge you know bridge over to being an entrepreneur. I think there's people at those, you know, asking themselves when when can someone do that sort of thing, and how often can someone go from what was the just the first step? You go from finishing, you do some postdoc work. When you move to shoot to uh, University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, that's you, you start there. You're doing postdoc work, and then you end up becoming a research scientist. I'll, I'll fundamentally admit to you, I don't know the distinction there. What what happens there? What what is that step? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, I think the two fundamental things is you know you're you're building your network you're expanding your relationships with you know key stakeholders in those spaces and then another part is that you're working on on writing papers uh, and publishing them and presenting them at conferences and those based two on things degree, based on the phd based, exactly based on the phd degree based on the work uh, that i've done for the you know in, in five years we published like 10 15 papers okay. so you go every few months to a, a a conference dedicated for one topic, you know, honeypots or, or cybersecurity for you know network cybersecurity, and there you uh, you meet a community, and through the papers you're presenting, you know, you're expanding your network and making like really quality contact, uh, because you have sometimes just a, a handful of research groups in the world working on the same topic, so you quickly know pretty much everyone in that space, uh, and that helps to uh, you know move forward in. In discussing research concepts and and uh, and I was always very interested in, in uh, applied research. You know, like like how can we bridge from you know the, the the concepts that we put in our papers to an actual solution for the industry and theoretical and, and, to actually exactly. applying. Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah. And I think that's really why I was also always um, you know pushing to publish what I was doing as, as open source projects, because you, you have a paper you can read, but you also have some some source code you can study or even execute on your machine and, and then uh, and then get the, the value from the research. 
so let's let's i think this is i'm always wanting to tease out so these these just you know certain moments of these interviews and it seems like there's one potentially right here which is there's going to be a lot of people in academia who your words about practical application is probably pretty important because there's certainly some maybe deserved undeserved reputation of ac academia you know all sorts of theoretical stuff but mm -hmm. and, and never ever amounting to anything now I, i'm not one to say that there isn't value there because that wellspring you know all sorts of things get born there but you you had a mindset and it, it it's when we get to your next steps where you end up becoming an entrepreneur it probably didn't hurt that you were you're saying early on you were thinking about what's the actual application of this how right. how many people in academia are thinking that way and is that is that something you would share and say look if you're if you're working in academic research or or you're you know a student at some level it, would you charge people to be more you know a little bit more focused on that is that is that an important message I think we need both. You know, the, we both need the long-term research and, and more applied short-term research. So my preference, you know, for myself has always been to be closer to the you know, short-term applicability and, and making sure we solve today's problems. But that's not dismissing the value of, you know, long-term research because we need that absolutely. Like things that we can study now that will have an impact in 20, 30 years. But it's really based on on you know what's important for you and and um and some folks you know fall on one one side of this uh this spectrum and and others on the other side and so i i'm much more a you know engineer by trade and and uh working on applied research but um but yeah i think it's important to realize where you are and and what you want to do yeah yeah makes makes sense so about 10 years ago I think is where my my uh, question around industrial control systems, starts, <laughs> right? Uh, as you know, detection uh, is um, design and develop. I'm reading this because it's like design and develop specification based intrusion detection systems, smart energy delivery systems. Now I know that my question is finally is intersecting there, right? <laughs> Correct. I was you know finishing my degree, um, studying a postdoc at the University of Maryland for a few months and presenting papers at a conference and. Very fortunate to, uh, you know, the, the session chair of of the, the presentation I was giving was uh, Professor Bill Sanders, uh, the head of the trustworthy uh, cyber infrastructure for the Power Grid Group. Uh, you know, back in 2010, a large research project with eight universities, led by uh, University of Illinois and and funded by DOE and DHS, really with a mission to develop you know the next generation of of technology and solution for the power grid for securing our, our critical infrastructure and professor sanders was looking for for a postdoc and i was looking for a job so i, I that's really was the, the the key turning point for me to join the university of illinois and and learn everything i could about control systems like in in the span of uh, maybe six months i went to uh, the summer school uh, that uauc was was organizing i you know was very fortunate to be able to work directly with industry partners, you know, learning about the way the power grid is structured, you know, generation, transmission, distribution, uh, what's in a substation, what are the protection relays, what, uh, you know, the, the whole set of equipment we need to run, you know, the most sophisticated piece of machinery that, that human ever built and, and really, uh, you know, adding that uh, that set of knowledge and expertise in in a short time frame, so that I could, uh, you know, I could contribute to that field and and uh, and work on those projects as well. So let's talk about the research. And uh, I think it only is a couple of years of research, you know, in this ten year story, and it it, right. becomes, it becomes a company. 
So I think there's there's something really important there to share, which is how how university-based research sometimes becomes companies. Uh, that's not com incredibly clear to everybody, and that's probably not even clear to some people working in, in academic institutions, which vary widely on how commercialization yep. works. But what can you share about, you know, when is it recognized that, when do you recognize, hey, let's let's do something? And I know you're not, you said there's, there were some other people in that founding story, some still involved in the company today, some less so, but there was this somewhere a spark, like, hey, let's, let's take what we're working on. Was it right away? Like, let's do this and let's take it out? Or was it we're working on something and, oh my gosh, we've got something. What, what was it? No, that, that's uh, a yeah, great question. So, so we, you know, it, it took a few years. Like it started, the core research was actually a PhD thesis by uh, Sankalp Singh, you know, working on a way to verify network access policy. And the initial name was APT, Access Policy Tool. And then APT became famous for, you know, yeah. uh, something Let's else. So we, had to, here. <laughs> <laughs> we, had to, we had to rename. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and that's also where you see, uh, you know, in in a research lab, uh, you know, naming things is not is not a forte. Uh, uh, great on the concepts, but but in terms of, of naming and marketing, we need we need the, the help of other folks. But yeah, working with Professor Sanders, Professor David Nicole, uh, Muna Bemba, Sankat, and then Edmund Rogers on this initial project, and you know, not knowing that we would you know at some point launch a company from it. But again, the the unique model that the university, this specific university had around research was to pair you with an industry partner from day one. So we were able to work with Emran Services, with Comed, you know, utilities in the Midwest, really understanding their pain points, their use cases as we develop the technology. And uh, that's actually, actually a practical application. You exactly. were just in a lab. It yep. was out there so that's i don't know how many programs do that but that gave you a leg up to, to what ends up happening doesn't it yeah it's, yeah absolutely and actually edmund rogers was working at emerald services He's, he was our first the first user of of this apt uh, concept gave us great feedback and ended up joining the university of illinois to work full-time with us on that research project and really that that accelerated or you know the set of connections we could make with uh, with the industry yeah. And then shaping this uh, initial prototype into, uh, you know, something that could, you know, become a product. And there, access to great resources, both on the, you know, the university side and the, the government side. So DHS had this uh, grant to be able to, you know, it, it's like a, a technology transfer grant. It, it gives you, uh, you know, uh, some money for one year to experiment and get feedback from industry partners. So we were able to leverage that funding to go in the field, try and test the prototype and have other people testing the prototype. It's, it's always funny, you know, when you work, work on a research project, you have it working in a lab and it's 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 one user and you just yourself and the computer and you, you code it and you, you make it work. You can give demos and it's working great. Yeah. But as soon as someone else is trying it, you know, things are, are collapsing. It's, it's not about yeah. working. And, and that's really the difference between you know, building a research prototype and building a product. Like a product, it needs to be developed in such a professional way that, uh, you know, thousands of users can just do a lot of things with it and it won't break. And that was really a, a transition for us. So once we had the feedback from the industry to, um, that was really outstanding, that we knew that we had something of value that the electric industry needed in order to, you know, improve the way they were protecting critical assets. Uh, we decided to branch out of the university. And so in addition to this government funding, we we had uh, the support from the Office of Technology Management, OTM, at the University of Illinois. And they have a whole 
workflow to help you, you know, decide and and test the market and and really uh, validate that this is the right way forward to maintain the technology. And uh, you know, they. Illinois, that, I, I want you to confirm this, but I think I've already heard it, it's pretty progressive. That's a well-oiled machine. Where some exactly. universities, it is not. Yeah, especially back in 2012, 2014, you know, I think UAUC was was leading the pack there with a few others. I think today uh, there's been a lot of progress in academia to uh, help professors and researchers, you know, you commercialize their, their technology or at least license it. But yeah, OTM at the time had a, a process to uh, to help us and guide us through a lot of, you know, those validation steps. And then, um, yeah, we co-founders and I, we uh, took the plunge and, and incorporated natural perception. And really the first uh, few years, just Muna, myself, a couple of developers to refactor this research prototype into a product that could be uh, commercialized one day. Yeah, I, boy, this for me is a, is a, is something I have so much sort of empathy for. Um, I've, I licensed the technology once with others out of a research lab and what worked in the lab and what worked in the real environment. It, it, you know, things are at their most beautiful before they have to yep. be actually applied. Yes. <laughs> um, and they're like, oh, a lot of discovery then. So I, I totally, I totally get that. Um, and uh, I love how you guys had, you, you had, you were already had, uh, you know, direct tethers to the industry from the get-go as part of the whole, you know, part of the whole makeup. That's, that's pretty, uh, pretty, pretty good advantage, I, I would suspect. And so, yeah, how would you characterize that 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 journey then of of commercializing and becoming an entrepreneur, which is what I've been since I left the military. I was thinking yep. of my own story when you were talking, like I was in the military and I got out to start a company. And and so, what was your, um, you know, what was that transition like? And and uh, you know, welcome to entrepreneurship, by the way. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, no, that was a very, uh, you know, a learning journey for me because I I wasn't my career plan initially, but I enjoy you know new opportunities and and i think my passion for applied research making an impact and seeing things that uh, we we develop to help uh, actual users uh, like really i had this this angle to uh, really fit into that entrepreneurship model and and working on on usability working on information visualization so i really enjoyed the whole the whole journey but yeah working with great partners as i said great resources from the university uh the first couple of years to uh, refactor the, the student code into a, a, an actual product. And then uh, around 2016, 2017, uh, starting the commercialization. And what was key there to was to establish a, a very strong relationship with the regulators in that space, uh, NERC. You know, NERC's, NERC has a standard critical infrastructure protection standard, SIP, and, you know, really important requirements around protecting uh, cyber assets uh, through strong, you know, inventory, strong cyber hygiene, strong network access policy. And this uh, access policy is really a cornerstone of the standard. And prior to using our, our technology, it was a very tedious task for, for NERC to accomplish. You know, uh, if you ever like audited a firewall, but those can have hundreds of thousands of policy rules. And you have to look up object groups. You have to, uh, you know, Put the pieces in place to understand exactly what's being enforced on the on the network interfaces, and as a result, NERC, NERC auditors had to sample. They had to ask utilities, show us uh, you know 20 rules at random, and then we'll try to make a determination whether or not you are you know you're compliant. So we, you know, the technology we built helped to automate that whole process and really remove the risk of human errors, empower you know both on the utility side and the the, the NERC auditor side a very clear understanding of how the network is configured and then 
detecting right away you know misconfiguration of a permissive rule and knowing exactly if the policy we have at the level of you know a site or an organization correctly enforced by your fleet of firewalls or whether you have gaps in terms of uh, you know access policy service access you know ip address yep. access well I, that i love the story it, were there any challenges going from research to uh, you know, to company uh, on the outside, a, a startup, and and anything you would have done differently, especially if we've got people listening that are looking at commercializing research technology they're working on, whether at universities or one of the defense labs, is there anything you're like, oh, man, I wish we had thought about this before we, you know, or, or either early on or before or mm -hmm. during the transition? You know, I think we were well positioned with our uh, industry relationship to get that continuous feedback as we developed the software. It was not an easy journey. You always have unexpected issues, especially when you ingest complex input like we do. Uh, you know, we the, the technology works by ingesting configuration from firewalls, and uh, you know those those firewall configuration can be extremely complex. So the first few times, you know, every time a new user would import their config, it would break, like the, the software wouldn't uh, be able to pass or, or understand all the intricacies of, of those complex configurations. Yeah. And and so, you know, really having access to great champions, you know, folks who can, you know, have the patience to work with you and give you feedback and understand that it's it's an early stage and not everything will work 100% and, and work with you to to improve was uh, was instrumental. So I think, you know, if I had to redo something, really focus on the customer development even further like that that means you know to find those champions and get the technology tested and and always have an ear from your users to make sure that what you're building is 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 working extremely well and you didn't say it but i, I think you implied it in developing those champions be very honest and upfront of the status of it don't should a shine on it exactly uh, tell them where it is and build get, get them to be on board yep. with the stage you're actually at Yep. Yeah, you know, it's a unique uh, personality. You need to find folks who are optimistic, but also, as you said, very transparent, very honest, sometimes brutally honest, uh, to tell you, you know, this is this is not working. It's a period. You need to uh, to redo that whole module or something. And so, uh, so yeah, you know that we were fortunate again to uh, to uh, be able to establish contact with uh, with folks like this, and and that helped a lot to you know, accelerate that transition from from academia to um, to become a commercial uh, commercial product. Yeah. How about anything with on the human being side of things that you would do differently, you know, as far as uh, communicating, team building, you know, building a company that, the, you know, the non-technical stuff, the non-product stuff, how, mm -hmm. prepared, how prepared were you and, and the other, you know, other founders for that? Yeah, that's a really important aspect. And I think that's as you become an entrepreneur, you discover, you know, the, the human and the culture and, and the relationships you build are becoming more and more prevalent. You know, you start being a technologist and you work, you know, pretty much 90% of your time in front of a keyboard coding or, or emailing. And then as the company grows, uh, you know, the size of the team is, is growing as well. And you discover that a hey, human relationships is, is extremely important. And so, uh, you know, like every company, you, uh, you, you, you make some mistakes and you, uh, you discover, you know, the way to communicate clearly, uh, making sure everyone is aligned uh, not leaving a vacuum because you need to really be uh, uh, clear in, in the way you you set your vision and, and uh, set your you know how you plan to execute on it. But no, that was that's been has been a great journey for me and and uh, I learned a lot. Yeah, anything you would go back you know uh, at any of the stages, not just you know this creating of a company, 
but any stage, any advice you would give to a younger younger Robin, if you were sitting down uh, at those earlier stages, would you would you say here's you know here's three things or here's something, anything like that come to mind? I think, you know, two things. Maybe having a great set of mentors, you know, mentorship from people who've done it before, and also uh, good connections with other CEOs or founders in the same boat. It's, it's almost like you're building a support group and, and knowing what people are facing, uh, the challenges they have, and they are early stage like you, I think really helps to put things in perspective. Uh, otherwise, you can be completely uh, submerged by your own, uh, you know, your own world. And so being able to look up and see what other people are going through. And then, yeah, having, having frequent, you know, discussions with mentors who can also, uh, you know, tell you, uh, you know, give you some recommendations, advice on, on books you should read or, or things you should put in place, like communication framework for your team or, or, or even connect you with uh, folks you can hire. Uh, I think that's been key. So, so my yeah, my advice would be uh, you know nurture and and you know make sure that you have good mentors and a good support group with other founders with you to, uh, to go yeah. through the journey. This theme is coming up in every one of these interviews and around mentorship and uh, it, its importance. And what was your own experience, or what, and even today, you find that people are you know, more often than not open to giving mentorship? Because a lot of people who say, oh, I'd love to have a mentor or I'd love to receive some mentorship. It doesn't have to be yep. formal. It doesn't yep. have to be every Wednesday at one o'clock. There's all sorts of mentorship, but yep. afraid to ask someone for it. Um, like, why would they want to give that to me? Can you explain a little bit about, about how prevalent it is that people will give and, and in your own experience of why they'll give? It's curious, but yeah, everyone, I'd, I've never met anyone saying no to those invitations to uh, to mentor or to, to coach or, or, you know, sometimes people are extremely busy, so they will tell you, you know, reconnect with me in a quarter. But really, 100% of requests I did outbound to uh, to folks, uh, I, I built some great relationships. So I think we put some uh, psychological barriers on ourselves when we don't reach out. Uh, but but you're right. Like, it's uh, people really want to give back. They really want to share from their experience and expertise. And uh, I was actually giving a... A, uh, a talk a few weeks ago to a program called Road to Hire with young, you know, students working on cybersecurity, and and that's what we're discussing about it. And I told him like, please, everyone, just just connect with me on LinkedIn afterwards, and and let's keep in touch. And and uh, yeah, because because you want to do that. You, you you went through that journey yourself. You want to share what you learn with others and and help them. And that's a pretty universal. Uh, feeling. I've, I've never met, uh, you know, anyone refuting this. Yeah, I think that that is what has come out. Is is, is uh, it, it may be that people in general in lots of industries are this way, but within the cybersecurity industry, it's clear that people are open. Uh, you know, and and I think in the entrepreneur industry, yep. which is my my you know my realm as well, um, people are open. Entrepreneurs are willing to give give you know, and it's a giving and receiving, right? I've always yep. been receiving good advice, and I seek that. Uh, and I've had a couple of great mentors. Uh, but I'm also willing to give it too, and you're yep. in that stream, right? Uh, and, and I don't know that ever. I don't know why that would ever change. I mean, I guess you could reach some point where you're not necessarily seeking it anymore. But I'm, I'd have to be pretty old and pretty done uh, mm -hmm. to, not, to not know there's still something I could learn from somebody else. Yep. No, you're right. And it's specific, specifically in the um, in the electric industry, where the way the the you know the 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 country is, is the territory is divided with different utilities and organizations, it's a very much a community-based industry. Like people are 
are in this together. It's one electric grid. Uh, we're all contributing to it. We want to make sure it's reliable and safe and and uh, and secure. And so uh, so that community uh, feeling is 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 great. Like you can really establish great relationships, and that's why I always enjoy going to industry conferences in that space because the the connections you're making with folks are are just outstanding. Yeah, I wanted to give that you 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 um, jog my memory when you're talking about you were going in your postdoc to these places where you're presenting papers based on your research, but there may be people um, that aren't you know they're not they don't they're not in the position to do that. Can they plug into those? Is there an opportunity to go and network at those sort of, sort of events? So they may be in academia. They're not yep. presenting their thesis. That's just not the stage they're at. But there yep. is an opportunity to go to these things and meet other people that are that are thinking about this interest area that they that, that you have in common, right? Yeah, I mean, and actually, with uh, you know COVID, I think a lot of virtual meetups have have started, so it's even easier than before to uh, engage with with those groups. Uh, and then uh, you know, hopefully, when we have you know good in-person conferences, the same way we did pre-COVID. You're right. There's always opportunities to join them, and you know, even if like professional conferences sometimes have a a, a high uh, registration cost, it's always a you know student discount or something for you know people getting started. And if you just contact the organizers, uh, they're always happy to you know open up the network and and invite you at a lower cost, and so you can join and and try to uh, you know start making uh, expand your network there. Yeah, you know, that that's I think that's a great thing you brought up because that's true. Just ask, and mm-hmm. you'll be surprised if it's not public publicly, you know, announced. There there may be an appetite. There often is an appetite to support young entrepreneurs as well, not just students, yep. but also entry level entrepreneurs. That's another group that people will lift it will will, will offer a helping hand. You might have to ask, but you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. You'll be surprised what you find. Okay, that's 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 fantastic, and I think that 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 concept of building your building the network. Uh, this comes up in these interviews as well as, you, you know, in, in whatever you're doing, you don't know when you're going to need, you know, maybe do something with that person again or see them later yep. in another way. And so that you're building circles and circles of of of, of relationships. Right. And yep. that they, they all matter. And I think that's a you know, that area is a, there's a whole lot of advice around in there around don't burn any bridges and keep you know, yep. sort of keep the doors open and don't slam the door on your way out of something because you don't know when you're going to see those people again. Exactly. You know, it's like planting seeds. Right. Many of them won't lead to anything but that's okay it's it's you know you, you keep planting seeds uh i remember like having that new year resolution myself of saying okay once a week i just reach out to someone i don't know and then uh in the community or the network and you know sometimes once a week is too uh too often so you just once a month but or once every two weeks but at least to have that that process so that over time you build that network and you you plant those seeds and and you'll be surprised sometimes it's years later when when something comes back but uh it's it's always i think a good uh, discipline to build and to uh, a good workflow to have well that may be uh the golden nugget as i call them from this session have a process so there's the randomness of meeting people and having relationships that's unfortunately yep. i think that's a lot of people or there's the process for i'm going to deliberately meet people I would say yep. then that there's a secondary process, maintain connections with people that you've met. Exactly. But yeah. you 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 shared something really important there. And that may be something for at all stages of careers, not just entry level people or people yep. in academia, but anybody just say, be more deliberate about those relationships you'd like to have. You'll be yeah. surprised how receptive people will be. And um and and maybe you have a formula, maybe it is once a week, maybe it yeah. is once a week, whatever you can handle, but it's formula it could be formulaic because I'm going to do it. And if it's outside your comfort zone. 
that formula and a system is even more important because you're saying I've got Absolutely. to do one. I've got to do one today. I've got to do one this week. Yeah, yeah. No, they dedicate just uh, one hour a week. You know, the same same hour, same day every week to go through your LinkedIn to uh, to go through uh, your contact list for folks you haven't spoken to in a in a while. And and you're right, like making sure you follow up, making sure you take notes, even like build this, uh, you know, like a, a CRM for yourself, like a database of contact yeah. where you can keep good notes of you know you know you know who you met when what you discussed and then and then uh, you know that way you can uh, you know when the time comes where you have some synergies or some areas of where you can help them or they can help you then you can quickly uh, contact them and they'll be ready yeah absolutely and i add to that that it, it, it can be the professional things you keep track of but it also be like oh my gosh we have similar hobbies that that can be great in the future to be doing something that's a pat you're both passionate about Right. That you could have ramifications in in professionals in the professional side of things. Yep, it's a fun way to be as well, and and it further further connects you with some people in a in a new dimension, a new way. Exactly. Um, so I know if I get into to, to rock climbing uh, again, I did some many 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 years ago. I know who to call now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I love rock climbing. I mean, again by rock climbing, I, I mean bouldering. So it's it's indoor yeah. in the gym. Uh, yeah. I don't, you know, you won't see me at the, at the, you're not, on, on you're not into the side of the Swiss exactly, Not yet, not yet. I'm working yeah. my way to it. But you know what I love about this hobby or this, this activity is that when you're on the wall and you're climbing, you know, you just, you're focused on one thing, which is to not fall and hurt yourself. And that's a great way to like clear your mind. Like if you have a lot of things going on during your week or your day, and then you're just exhausted mentally, uh, you just go climb on the wall and and everything becomes super clear it's it's you and gravity and then uh you know making sure you don't uh you don't fall and it's a, it's a great way to uh you know clear your mind well i couldn't agree with you more for me that's scuba diving i teach scuba mm -hmm. diving and uh and there are people who witnessed some weeks where i've had a lot of students and they're like oh man it's such hard work and i'm like it's got a physical component that can be a little tiring but it's totally different than what i normally do and it's yeah. not mentally tiring it's yeah. actually invigorating and uh, so it's like I welcome that when I get a chance every year to do, you know, to do a, a couple of weeks of just teaching people to scuba dive. It's 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 the greatest thing ever. Yeah, I'm tired and I sleep really, really well that night, but it's different. It's not mentally exhausted. Exactly. Now we need that balance. We need to have, yeah. you know, those activities in our lives because otherwise it's, uh, you know, it's 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 you burn out like it's just too much. Yeah. Well, that's probably a, a, a very good way to sort of, uh, you know, wrap up our, our discussion. That's a great nugget, too, which is, you know, definitely keep that. Keep keep your life multidimensional. Keep something you're passionate about going that doesn't have to do with with your mm -hmm. main your main work. And sometimes the the paths can cross. I'm True. still working very hard to get cybersecurity and scuba diving together. I'm I'm, I'm actually working on it. It's going to happen. There's going to be there's something in the works already. So we'll, we'll see. I, I'm going to bring my worlds together. In, in Absolutely, some it's funny. Like sometime at the gym, I I would meet some software developer. I would like be on the wall and then hear something about cybersecurity next to me. So I wouldn't get in yeah. conversation. But you're right. Yeah. Like sometimes the two worlds are are, are connecting. Yeah. Yep. Okay, now we get to my favorite part of the show when I get to tip my hat to a uh, a show on TV that I always enjoyed, Inside the Actor Studio. It was hosted by James Lipton for decades and syndicated all around the world in many, many countries. And he had a very particular style and methodology for interviewing entrepreneurs on the stage of the acting school uh, where he was the dean in, in, in New York City. He, he's passed on and I think someone is, I think they do have a new host, but I'm not sure of the status today. He borrowed, he ended his show with, with something he called the Pavot Questionnaire from a French show. 
So I think you're the first person uh, born in France <laughs> on this show. So it's sort of a nice tie-in. But I do this every time, regardless of uh, where somebody's from originally. And he borrowed that. And I'm using the exact same questionnaire that he borrowed and, and did at the end of his show to, to end mine. So if you're ready, we'll do the uh, we'll do the question. Let's do it. All right. What is your favorite word? <clears throat> Serendipity. Wow. That's the second time someone has said that. <laughs> That's interesting. That was somebody else's favorite word. I just did a recording before yours. Uh, what is your least favorite word? Mm, pessimism. What turns you on, either creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? Good storytelling. What turns you off? Boring storytelling. What is your favorite curse word or abbreviation? Uh, mailed. Aha. What sound or noise do you love? I think as French people, we do a lot of sounds with our, you know, when we talk. So I, I'm sure I'm, I'm seeing a lot of them all the time. And my friends could tell me like which one I use all the time. It's hard for me to, uh, to, to find one, but uh, yeah, sometimes when I like, I mean, indifferent about something, I would have, or, or something like this, and and it's it's a pretty funny sound to make. What sound or noise do you hate? The sound of my alarm clock at uh, at six thirty a.m. What profession or uh, other than your own would you like to attempt? Architect. I think I I love architecture, and I would love to you know study architecture more. What profession would you not like to do? Hmm, that's a tough question. I, I I think all pretty much all professions. You know, it's it's always at least for a day or two always fascinating to try. Um, but uh, you know, I think maybe working in you know in in a health setting like like being a nurse or or something like this would be uh, pretty difficult for me. Yeah. And if heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Great first round. Here is the second lap. All right. Well, thank you, Robin Berthier, uh, CEO and co-founder of Network Perception. I uh, enjoyed uh, our time together on the show. Thank you for everything you're doing uh, in the industry and and for doing all the research that led to uh, you know to a to a new company in the space that's I know doing well and making an impact. So thank you for all that and thank you for being a supporter. Uh, for your company being a supporter of, of CSA recently. That's that's also a new thing that's uh, that's exciting. Great. Thanks, Eric. I really enjoy your conversation as well and, and looking forward to uh, working with you and your team and continuing in that uh, in the industry. Sounds great. Take care and be well. See you next time. See everybody at the next show.